Malachi chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest shall guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but, but show partiality in your instruction. Did you know that if you are a Christian, you are also a priest? That's the first thought that ran through your head when you woke up this morning, wasn't it? Ah, what a good day to be a priest. No? Yeah, me neither. It's not something we normally think about, especially in our postmodern, Western, kind of post-religion culture. Now, you may not have fancy robes or animal sacrifices all day long that you're attending to, but if you have a relationship with the Creator God, Yahweh, if you believe in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection that atoned for your sins, then you are a member of His priesthood. This is how God has chosen to relate to his people all throughout the history of the world. All the way back in Exodus 19, God establishes a covenant relationship between the Israelites and himself, what we call the Mosaic Covenant. And um, he says in verses 5 and 6 of Exodus 19, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandment, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And this is no different for us today as well. In fact, in some ways, it's actually a little bit more true. The Mosaic Covenant was fulfilled by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and him living a perfect sinless life. And on that, Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, uh, in verses 5 and verses 9 of 1 Peter 2, You yourselves, like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then in verse 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. If you are in Christ, you are by definition a priest of God. There's no special requirements for this. You don't need to go to seminary. You don't need to get a sword like I just did. 
You don't need to be ordained. Your first name doesn't need to be pastor. If you are a Christian, you are a priest. If you're 14 years old and you're just entering high school, you're a priest. If you work at Walmart and you drive forklifts, you're a priest. If you're a stay-at-home mom drowning in diapers and tantrums and naps, you are a priest. This is something we don't think about most days. It doesn't run through our minds. And so I want to challenge you this morning to think about this reality with me. We're going to dive into the word in Malachi 2 that Pat already read for us. We're going to look at two examples of priests in Malachi, and we're going to see what the Lord has to say for us this morning. So turn your Bibles, if you will, with me to Malachi 2. If you don't have one, there's Bibles under the chairs in front of you. You're welcome to keep those as your own if you don't have one or you know someone that needs one. So I know it's been a long week, so let me jog your memory a little bit. Last Sunday, we went over the latter half of chapter 1 in Malachi, where we get the down low of all the temple priests had been doing wrong, primarily being unwilling servants and allowing blemished sacrifices to be sacrificed on the altar to God to atone for the sins of the Israelites. Uh, 13 gives us a good summary of that in verse 1. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Imagine if you were to do what the priests were doing to God here to your spouse. My wife's birthday is February 6th, which is eight days before Valentine's Day, so Hallmark gets a lot of my money in February. Um... But so imagine I buy her a birthday card and a gift and flowers and all of that. I give them to her on her birthday, and it's great and wonderful. And then the eve of Valentine's Day comes around. I'm going, oh, I got to get her something. So I go digging through her nightstand, find the card that I gave her for her birthday, take the part that says, happy birthday, and I scratch out birth with a Sharpie and write Valentine's over it. Then I go digging through the trash and find the envelope that it came in and stuff it back in and try to tape it as best I can and hand it to her in the morning. Happy Valentine's Day. The words on the card might still say I love you, but what do you think she is going to hear? (laughs) Doghouse, party of one. And this is just a relationship between two imperfect, broken, sinful people. Those consequences are bad enough, believe me. Well, don't believe, I didn't try it, but (laughs) believe me, they would be bad. (laughs) Try doing that to the Most High God, the Creator of all things. The one who said in verse 14 of chapter 1, I am a great king and my name will be feared among all the nations. Honestly, this passage we're about to go through is an incredible display of God's infinite mercy that he didn't right then and there bring down fire from heaven to destroy them for their massive disrespect and dishonor. So as we start chapter 2, he says, hey priests, here's where you went wrong and what's about to go down because of it, because you broke the covenant relationship. So Malachi 2 Verses 1 and 2. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. 
Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. If you like to take notes in your Bible, underline that line right there. You do not take it to heart. That right there is the summation of all God accuses them of in chapter 1. This is the reason all of these things are happening. Remember back in verse 6 of chapter 1, they say, God, how have we despised your name? How have we dishonored you? What are you talking about? We've done everything you've asked. We've obeyed. We've done the things. We've gone through the motions. God says, this is how. You do not take it to heart to honor my name. You showed up for Valentine's Day. You brought a card. It's clear you don't care. You may be going through the motions, but your heart is not in it. Your actions prove you do not honor and revere my name. And so God reveals the consequence in verse 3. Behold, that means wake up. I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. Huh? I bet you didn't expect to hear that in church this morning. <laughs> we'll spread dung on your faces. That's gross, God. That kind of sounds like a, a play school insult. But actually, God's making a very specific point that the priests would have understood. If we flip back in our Bibles to Leviticus 4, this is where God is lining out the specific ways that we are supposed to be, the priests are supposed to be doing the animal sacrifices and the offerings, how you divide them up, what parts you burn, what parts you don't, what's holy, and all of that. And in verse 11 of Leviticus 4, he says this to the priests, But the skin of the bull and all its flesh, with its head, its legs, its entrails, and its dung, All the rest of the bull he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place, to the ash heap, and shall burn it up on a fire of wood. On the ash heap it shall be burned up. God is saying, I'm going to take the very thing you think will make you clean, and I'm going to make you dirtier with it. These sickly and unworthy sacrifices you brought, yeah, I'm going to smear the dung and the entrails from those things upon your faces so that you, along with those unworthy sacrifices and those unclean parts, must be carried outside of the camp, away from my presence, and to be burned up in fire. But wait, it gets worse. Skip over to verse 7 in Malachi 2. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. God said, this is what priests should look like. Verse 8, but you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. It's bad enough the priests were doing the work poorly and begrudgingly, but it's even worse that the priests were giving the thumbs up to the Israelites as they were bringing their blemished sacrifices, assuming that they were acceptable for the atonement of their sins and maintaining that right relationship with God, upholding the covenant. So the people of God assume that everything's fine, that they're blessing God and they're being blessed by God, and there's no rift in the relationship. Hey, the priest said, I'm good, I'm going to church, I'm throwing 20 in the plate, I'm doing the things I'm supposed to, I'm singing the songs, and I got the A-OK. But they weren't good. The sacrifices were not 
good enough. So God turns their blessings into curses, that they should be removed from his presence, them and the future generations after them. This is the penalty for breaking the covenant. God can no longer be in relationship with them. They can no longer be in his presence. What a massive offense. It's not just anyone profaning the Lord. These are the people whom God specifically chose to be his representatives to the world. And these are the ones that are dragging God's name through the mud, assuming that everything is okay, and leading everyone else astray into breaking that covenant without them honestly even realizing it. Remember, they didn't all have scriptures in their homes. They could just read and know this stuff. They relied on the priests to know what God had to say to them. They relied on the priests to read the word so that they could know how to live in right relationship with him and know that their status was okay. Jesus spoke of this to his disciples in Luke 17, verses 1 and 2, when he says, It is inevitable that stumbling blocks will come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him to have a millstone hung around his neck and to be thrown into the sea than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. And God says in verse 8, You have caused many to stumble. How does it come to this? How does it get this bad? How did God's chosen people become the blasphemers of his name? How did the priests forsake their calling and their God so severely? I want to clarify something. These priests weren't evil, malicious men. It wasn't their intent to be robbing God of glory and to be profaning, 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 profaning his name. God says in verse 8, you have turned aside from the way. So at one point, they were following the way. They truly were following the Lord faithfully and doing all that he commanded them. But over time, their awe and their wonder dulled. And the incredibly strict and rigorous sacrifices, cleansing rituals, everything that the Lord lines out in all of Leviticus, the end of Exodus, uh, Deuteronomy, it got old and it got tiresome. And the rebuilt temple was pathetic as well. Add that on top of it, insult to injury. It was pathetic compared to Solomon's temple, and they realize that, they know that, they remember what it was like. And the promises of God seem far off. He keeps promising a Messiah. He keeps promising one who will come and rebuild the temple and rebuild everything and make them a holy nation above the rest of the world, or at least the way they were understanding it. And it seemed like he wasn't coming through with that promise. How much longer, Lord, are you going to wait to fulfill your promises? Don't you see what a terrible plight we are in? They were trying to do the right thing, but their hearts grew cold and their determination wavered. Do you ever find yourself in this place? Have you grown weary of serving the Lord? Is it Is there something in your service to God as a Christian that has slowly drifted into a blemished, half-hearted sacrifice? How is your heart this morning? Take stock right now. I don't want you to just be a sermon consumer. We're going to close our eyes and ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us. Close your eyes with me for a moment. We're going to pray. Lord, you are our wise counselor. Holy Spirit, you are in our lives and you are speaking to us. Reveal to us where we have failed. Reveal to us where we have 
gone lax and failed to honor your name. Lord, please speak to us this morning. Holy Spirit, you search our hearts and you know us. Speak to us and reveal to us your truth, the reality of where we are with God. Do you find yourself attending church just to check a religious box? Have you started unknowingly picking and choosing certain scriptures or theologies or commandments, conveniently ignoring the ones that challenge you or cost too much? Has a prayer gone unanswered, at least in the way you wanted it to be answered, and subtle doubt of the goodness of God starts to creep into your heart and into your mind? Are you losing the joy you once felt in Christ when you first know him, when it was fresh, when you realized what he had done for you, perhaps for the first time? If the Holy Spirit revealed anything to you in that moment of prayer, I want you to write it down. I want you to think about that, pray about that, see what he has to reveal to you. Because none of us start out this way. None of us become Christians and then instantly become people who profane the name of the Lord and drift away and start to dishonor him and break that covenant relationship. None of us start out that way. But the weariness of life unmet expectations and the distractions of this world, the battle in our flesh against sin, wear us down and we begin to make compromises. One commentator writes, perhaps a difficult season of life leaves one dull and dissatisfied with God. Perhaps the sheer weariness of months and years spent in service creates an unnoticed, dishonoring sloppiness in our worship. Doing something because it's the right thing to do loses its effectiveness over time. If your heart's not in it, eventually it will show. Perhaps it already is. I know I'm guilty of this. I've gone entire weeks without reading my Bible and praying, and I'm a pastor. That's my full-time job. One of the biggest priorities in my life is to read the Bible and to pray. And yet somehow I can manage to be a pastor all week long without doing that sometimes. That's the grace of God, by the way. Praise Jesus. Or worship. I can't think of the number of times I've been up here leading worship and and I realize I've just sang the last two songs and the only thing that's been in my mind is what I'm going to eat for lunch. You hear the words coming out of my mouth, but if you heard the thoughts, it'd be like, salami, bologna, pizza, maybe Costco. Oh, we need some groceries. What about... Like, <laughs> and yet somehow I'm worshiping. Now, there's an element to our broken bodies and our minds that are prone to wander, and that's okay. It's okay. But if that becomes a, a habit, if that becomes something that you consistently battle, there might be something in your heart going astray. So how do we avoid following the road that the priests in Malachi went down? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 4, Malachi 2. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi 
may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and he gave them, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. There's a lot to unpack in there. First of all, notice that God mentions the covenant of Levi multiple times. This is different than the Mosaic covenant, and this specific covenant is not mentioned by name anywhere else in Scripture, um, but it seems to be a covenant between God and the priesthood. And most scholars point to an incident back in the book of Numbers, chapter 25, involving a priest named Phineas. So we're going to turn there and look at that this morning as well. Uh, Numbers, chapter 25, starting in verse 1. And it'll be up on the screen as well. Verse 1, while Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. So Israel has broken the first couple commandments in the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make idols. They are now having the gods of the people who lived in Shittim, the Moabites, as the gods that they worship. Verse 4, And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from him. What he's referencing there is when you kill somebody, you cut their head off and you put it up on a pike. This is severe, what the Lord is calling them to do. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. Verse 6. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. So a guy comes in and flaunts this Midianite woman that he's bringing in. Everyone knows what's going to happen. They're going to go have relations. They're going to do what the Lord called them not to do specifically. So when Phinehas, verse 7, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. So Phineas sees this man not taking to heart to give honor to the name of the Lord, and he acts. He obeys the Lord. Verse 10, And the Lord said to Moses, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. 
Notice the two reasons God promises his covenant of peace to Phineas. Because he was jealous for his God, because he made atonement for the people of Israel. Malachi seems pretty clearly to be referring back to this moment. Look at the similarity to what we just read in Malachi in verse 5. My covenant with him was one of peace and life, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. He feared me more than he feared anyone else in the judgment of what he was about to do because he honored the Lord and obeyed him. He walked in up, excuse me, verse 6. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. God is saying, this is what my priests should look like. This is how you uphold your end of the covenant relationship. Zealous to honor my name and quick to save the people from their sins. Does this sound like anyone else in Scripture you might know? Let me remind you, Malachi is not just a historian looking back. He is also a prophet looking forward. All of these attributes that Malachi lists in 5, 6, and 7 are not just some priest of old who happened to get it right one day. They're marks of the true priest. They're marks of the Messiah. We, of course, know him to be Jesus of Nazareth. And all throughout the New Testament, his priestly character is confirmed. There's thousands of verses we're going to, but I want you guys to be able to get lunch, so we're just going to look at a couple. Uh, The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, is one example. Matthew 22, 35. Verse 35, and one of them, a lawyer, one of the Pharisees, asked him, Jesus, a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. If that sounds familiar to you, it should. And notice he asked him what, the, what is the great commandment is, and Jesus answers with two. He says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So look back to Phineas in Numbers 25. How was he upholding the covenant and maintaining right relationship with God? By being jealous for God, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And by making atonement for the people of Israel, love your neighbor as yourself. Phineas loved God enough to obey his severe but just commands, and he loved his neighbors, the people of Israel, enough to take the necessary actions to save them from the wrath of God and restore them to right covenant relationship. That sounds an awful lot like Jesus, doesn't it? In the Gospel of John, chapter 2, Jesus enters the temple 
And he sees the fraudulent practices going on over there, the extortion that the money changers were doing in the exchange rates, because you could only pay the temple tax with temple currency. And it had its own exchange rate that was ridiculous compared to the other currencies they were using. And charging exorbitant prices for the animals that they set aside and deemed, you can just bring your own animals. The temple had set aside animals that were declared pure that you could purchase for a crazy amount so that you could make yourself clean. So in John 2, starting in verse 15, it says this, And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And, he's, <clears throat> and he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Listen to this. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. There's the first priestly attribute. Jealous for the Lord, taking to heart to honor his name. Not standing around idle at the insult of the Most High God. And the second is easy to find as well. Uh, one example, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake God the Father took the Son to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, in Jesus, we might have covenant righteous relationship with God. Jesus lived a perfect sinless life that was not deserving of the wrath and punishment, but he took that upon himself in our place so that we can have covenant relationship with the Most High God. And Jesus tells his disciples later in John 15, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus atoned for the sins of his friends, all who believe in him, and provided the unhindered access to the Father that the Mosaic Covenant was designed to do thousands of years ago, but the people, the priests, were never able to fully live in and fulfill. The book of Hebrews goes into immense detail about all of this. Honestly, my sermon probably could have just been reading the entire book of Hebrews, but I don't know if you guys would have stuck around for that. So, um, but I seriously, I charge you, try to read the entire book of Hebrews this afternoon or sometime this week. It's beautiful how well it lays it out, this priesthood of all believers, how Jesus is the great high priest and everything. But we're just going to look at a summary of it this morning for the sake of time, which is in chapter 10. Of Hebrews, starting in verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And then skip to verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, 
Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Jesus shows us how to be a kingdom of priests. He makes it possible because he is the perfect priest who offered the perfect sacrifice once and for all. He is the great high priest and we are the priesthood of all believers in and through Jesus. We can draw near to the holy place, the presence of God with confidence because of Christ. He has fulfilled the priestly duty, the Mosaic law, excuse me, perfectly and made an everlasting atonement for our sins so that we can be in right relationship with God forever. Paul says of our priestly role in 2 Corinthians 5, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. I bolded that up there for a reason. I'll get to it. That, that is, the ministry of reconciliation is this. In Christ, God was reconciling the word, world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This is the entire reason we are here on this earth by the grace of God through the work of Christ Jesus. The ministry of reconciliation bringing the message of reconciliation. The reconciliation between God and a fallen, broken humanity. Good news that Jesus Christ has conquered death and offers eternal life to any who will simply believe. Now, you may also be on this earth for very specific works. Ephesians 2.10 says that he has very specific works that he has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So does God want you to do specific things? Uh, Be a nurse, be a teacher, go talk to that guy on the street. You bet, absolutely. But all of that should fall under the veil, the covering of being a ministry of reconciliation. Wherever you go, whatever you're doing, whatever job you're in, whatever relationship you are currently in or who you're talking to, your primary role is to bring the message of reconciliation. And that's not just for unbelievers. The believers need reminding that we have been reconciled, don't we? How many times a week do you wake up and I wake up in the morning and we do not feel reconciled? We know what we did last night. We know what our mind was already gearing up to do the next morning. How in the world could I be reconciled and still be doing this? Paul says in Romans 7, The things I don't want to do, I do. And the things I want to do, I don't do. Who can save me from this body of death? I need a reminder that I am reconciled. This is your primary job as priests, the message of reconciliation. And so I ask you again, and we'll wrap it up with this. What kind of a priest are you going to be? One who remains hopeful and steadfast, who hopes in the promises of the Lord and does not grow weary, or one whose heart goes astray and turns aside from the way, one who looks like the priests in Malachi, or one who looks like Jesus, the great high priest. 
The reality is that our priestly role, the one that you're called to do, is impossible to accomplish apart from a real, living, active, intentional relationship with Jesus Christ, our great high priest. No matter how sincerely you love the Lord, no matter how much you strive to do the right thing and live a holy life and obey all of his commandments, the weariness of life and the battle in your flesh against sin is going to wear you down. You all know this. You've experienced it enough. Remember what God says to the priest in Malachi in verse 8, you have turned aside from the way. What does Jesus tell his disciples he is in John 14? John 14, 6, one of the greatest, most well-known verses in the Bible, and for good reason. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. When the priests turned away from the way, they did not know it, but they were turning away from the Messiah. They were turning away from Christ who is the way, the truth, and the life, the means by which everyone comes to the Father, has righteous relationship with him. And one chapter later, John 15, he gives us one of my favorite, most treasured passages in all of Scripture. John 15, starting in verse 4. How do we avoid turning away from the way? Verse 4, abide in me and I in you. This is Jesus talking. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You will not be able to accomplish any portion of the message of reconciliation without Jesus. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Whoa. Go back to Malachi 2. What did he say was going to happen to the priests? Smear your faces with dung so that you are unclean, so you will be taken outside of the camp like these branches, thrown into the fire, and burned. He's saying the same thing here as he said, in Malachi. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, that you are successful priests and so prove to be my disciples, my followers, my kingdom of priests. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Here's the last verse. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. We cannot muster the ability to take heart, to bring honor, to defend the honor of the name of the Lord on our own. Not for long, at least. Maybe you have seasons where you're, you're doing it well. And really, we look at your life, and you can say with confidence, imitate me as I imitate Christ, and look at this. Look what I'm doing well. And that's okay. That's great. Praise the Lord. That's by his grace that we're able to do that. But it never lasts. You know that. It never lasts. The secret to our hearts staying in it is having the heart of Christ, not ours. The only way for our joy to be full is to have Christ's joy in us. 
So I encourage you, brothers and sisters, fellow priests, abide in Christ. Make it your aim every day to know Christ more fully and more deeply through reading the word, praying, and worship. A famous pastor from the 1800s once said, my people's greatest need is my personal holiness. What your husband, what your wife your children, your neighbors, your co-workers, the strangers you're going to run into on a daily basis, what they need from you more than anything else is your healthy, real, honest, true relationship with God your Father through Jesus Christ, our great high priest. Make that priority number one, and you will not turn aside from the way as the priest in Malachi did. Your heart will not grow faint. You will be able to run with endurance the race set before you, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And if you're here and you don't know the Lord Today, Like Paul says in 2 Corinthians, I implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. As a priest of God, I can tell you that the creator of the universe himself longs for relationship with you. He loves you, and he is the only thing that will ever truly satisfy and sustain you on this weary earth. If you don't know him, I implore you, please come to know him. He will give you everything you have been looking for. It may not look like what you think, but it will be better than you could possibly imagine. You could find me up at the front after the service. Find somebody around you and pray with them that you would come to know the Lord. We're all priests in here. We're all worthy of the message of reconciliation because of what Christ has done through us.